What would you say was the biggest threat to Christianity in our world? Because I've been thinking about it. Uh, you get these things on the TV, don't you? And you get these things in the news media uh, and it, it becomes a bit of a worry. Things where Christian people, because of their faith, are getting hurt and suffering and being persecuted and so on. And I've been giving it some thought. And it seems to me the biggest threat to Christianity in our world doesn't come from militant atheism or extremism in Islam. You're probably aware that in our county, in Carmarthenshire at the moment, there's a big fuss going on. Somebody's put up a petition to stop prayer before county council meetings. And I've had some conversation with those people and been a little bit involved in some of that. Uh, that's not a real threat. The biggest threat doesn't come from those who are militantly atheistic and want everybody else to be. The biggest threat doesn't come from those who are militantly Islamic in particular ways and want everybody else to be. The biggest threat to Christianity in this world isn't posed by forces outside it, but by things that happen within. By the degradation and by the decay of a vibrant understanding of the nature of Christianity and its life source, being decayed from within. And we're most threatened by what's called nominal Christianity, which takes the external things and makes them the thing most crucial for us to be clear then on the true nature of the biblical experience of God because we've got to preserve that if we're not going to fall into nominalism which is the biggest threat to Christianity in the world today we've got to be ready having done that to say to the confused and the benighted of our generation Look, what you're looking at there, and what you may be rightly rejecting, is not Christianity. There are two things. There's Christianity and there's not Christianity. And you've got to be clear about which is which you're looking at. And we can only do that if we can keep it clear ourselves. So, it's the work of the third person of the Trinity to manifest the active presence and experience of God in the world, mainly. That was a mainly. Do you notice that's a theologian's mainly? Uh, mainly there have been exceptions over time to that where it's not the third person of the trinity who manifest god and makes the experience of god real in the world there have been exceptions there certainly will be exceptions to that in eternity but for the moment the reality is this and here's a quote from wayne grudem in his huge systematic theology page 634 so you can see it's a big book the work of the holy spirit is to manifest the active presence of God in the world, and especially in the church. He's the one. Now, the Holy Spirit is the one who is most often present here, doing God's work in the world. Now, in the Old Testament, you get these theophanies, these appearances of God. Um, we could talk about Abraham. Uh, the Lord appears to Abraham by the terebinth trees in, uh, in Mamre, as he's sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So he lifts his eyes and he looks. And behold, three men were standing by him. And he meets with God there in Genesis 18. And God makes a covenant with him there. You can go on and you can look at uh, Jacob. And there's Jacob left alone. And a man wrestles with him. Till the break of day in Genesis 32. And Jacob asked, saying, tell me your name. And he says, why are you asking my name? And he blessed him, and that's all he gets. 
And Jacob calls the place Peniel because he says, I've seen God face to face and my life is preserved. I've seen the face of God. Peniel means the face of God. Many theologians refer to those then as, as the theophanies, the appearances of God. In addition to that, you experience God in the Old Testament, not just in theophanies, but where the angel of the Lord himself explicitly appears. So Manoah's wife, Samson's mother, she meets with somebody, an angel of the Lord, who tells her she's going to have Samson and tells her what he's going to wear and what he's going to look like. And how does she recount to her husband in Judges 13? A man of God came to me and his countenance was like the countenance of the angel of God. Very awesome. Didn't ask him where he was from. <laughs> he didn't tell me his name. So you get these appearances of God in the Old Testament. Way back. And they're basic. And they're, you, know, you can't work out a lot of theology from them. But they're there. Where it gets awkward is that all this seems to undermine the uniqueness and the importance of Jesus as the one who is God incarnate. And Maybe that's part of the reason why Christians speak about these appearances of the Lord as if they were appearances of Jesus before he came in the flesh. The angel of the Lord is, is referred to as if he's God. Uh, he's referred to as, <coughs> with masculine <coughs> pronouns, he's, he's identified as God. Judges 6, 11 and 14, Zechariah 12. He performs miracles, Judges 6, the way you'd expect, and Judges 13, the way you'd expect God to be able to do seems to be tipping the balance so you begin to think of him as perhaps a pre-incarnate Jesus. And then Gideon and Manoah thought they'd die because they saw the angel face to face. Just the way they thought they'd die if they saw God face to face. And then his name is Wonderful, Judges 13, 18. The name that's given to Jesus, specifically in Isaiah 9. It begins to look as if we've got examples where the angel of the Lord is not a normal angel but described the way Jesus as God is described but before he comes in the flesh in the manger in Bethlehem. So you get these occasional <coughs> encounters, meetings, experiences of God, where people thought they'd die for seeing him face to face. But they don't. No worked out theology. Just a meeting before the fuller experience of God comes. Normally we meet with God in the person of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, slightly different. And in the Gospels, of course, it's different again because you've got Jesus there. You meet with God when you meet with Jesus in the Gospels, don't you? He does the sort of things you'd expect of God, and that's the way it works. So Jesus appears at his baptism. And there God speaks out of heaven and he says, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Baptism of Jesus, close encounters, somebody called it, of the triune kind, right? Close encounters of the triune kind. You've got God the Father, you've got God the Holy Spirit coming down as a dove on him, and you've got God the Son in the water. The first time you're really aware in the Bible of the experience of God as three and as one. John's Gospel again describes, in different terms through a different culture, the one who is God, the Word. The organising principle of the universe in, in that culture in which John was speaking. And then again in John's Gospel there are these signs that go on where Jesus is doing the sort of things that only God can do. Son of man, son of God. God the Son. Till it comes to a focus at the end of Mark's Gospel. Where the centurion in charge of Jesus' execution detail recognises who you've got in Jesus when he sees the manner of his death. Surely this is the Son of God. You meet with God in the Gospels when you meet 
with Jesus. But then there's a problem, and we know there's a problem, and Jesus foresees it and sees it coming and tries to prepare people for it because he knows he's going. He knows there's going to be an execution detail. He knows he's going to die on the cross. And what does he say? I will send you another comforter to be with you. The way I've been with you and helping you and caring for you and looking after you, I'll send you another to be with you, the spirit of truth. And he'll be God with you then. He'll be the one with whom you encounter God and God caring and saving and nurturing. He'd send his, he said he'd send us another counsellor to be with us, the spirit of truth on whom we must then depend. If you want to see what God's like, your best shot is still to look at Jesus because there's God in the flesh, you know, fleshed out God. If you want to know what it means to follow God, then follow Jesus, because you've got that tangible, fleshly example, haven't you, to be working with and to be going with. But we actually encounter God now, we experience God now through the ever-present person of the Comforter, the one who comes alongside us to help us. And you hear people talking as if that is some innovation or bright new idea, don't you? crazy this was always the plan this was always to be the way fulfillment of all that's gone on in our encounter with and in our experience of god before from the beginning of creation you know the holy spirit's around so he's not new on the scene because there he is the spirit of god is moving across the face of the waters in genesis 1 and that same spirit comes on jesus at his baptism to equip him as the messiah the saviour the one who was to come and then the messiah says well yeah but i gotta go i'm giving you the spirit to be with you the spirit's work seems to be to complete what the father's planned out and the son has begun crucial 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 not to complete them as such but as they carry it from redemption to consummation here below if i said to you Tell me the Christian message. Tell me the message of the Bible in four words. What have you got? <laughs> Very challenging, isn't it? Can you say what the Bible's about in four words? Creation. Fall. Redemption. Consummation when God brings it all back together again under the headship of Christ. I guess that sums it up. So the Spirit... Is there at creation, is around at the fall, no doubt, is active in redemption because he anoints Jesus with the Spirit to, to be the Messiah and will be there at the consummation in glory in the throne room of heaven. But his role now is to carry us from redemption to consummation. Our experience of God in the third quarter of the game, if you like, from redemption to consummation, is with the Spirit of God, who is the comforter who is with us. Does that make sense? Is it all stacking up? At Pentecost, it's that same Spirit who comes to grant power to the church. Acts 1.8, Acts 2.4, Acts 2.17-18. So, he becomes the person of the Trinity through whom God particularly manifests his presence in the new covenant age. That's through them again. And because of where this happens in, the t in terms of the timeline of God's management of space and time, you know, creation, fall, redemption, consummation, between redemption and consummation, because, it, because our experience of him is there in that third quarter leading up to the consummation, you can describe, Paul can describe 
our experience of the Spirit of God as the first fruits or the deposit of the full presence of God that's coming at the consummation. That makes sense? So it's, it's Romans 8, uh, 8.23 and 2 Corinthians 1.22 and 2 Corinthians 5.5. 5, 5. Down payment, deposit. Because he's the one who's with us to be with us in this present evil age between redemption and, cons- and consummation. It's not something new, and it's something essential. He, he is essential. Our experience of him is essential for our experience of God. Uh, and this fulfills the purpose of God. We've seen his place in the big plan. That he's not something new. That this is what was prophesied. Isaiah 32. Desolation will come on the place. The land will become a wasteland forever. The delight of donkeys, a pasture for flocks. Till, Isaiah 32.15, till... The Spirit is poured on us from on high and the desert becomes a fertile field and the fertile field seems like a forest. Isaiah 44, 3. I'll pour water on the thirsty land, streams on the dry ground. I'll pour out my Spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Now on the other hand, the departure of the Spirit removes the blessing from the people of God. When you're conscious that the Spirit has gone, that's a sign of judgment. And Isaiah 66 says that way back as the plan was being told to us before it was put in place. Isaiah 66, uh, Isaiah 63, sorry, verse 10. Yet they rebelled and grieved his Spirit, so he turned and became their enemy, and he himself fought against them. Then his people recalled the days of old, the days of Moses and his people, and so on and so on. And there comes this time of future richer blessing as they turn back to God. Always in the Old Testament you get this hint coming through. At the back of all the sin and rebellion and return to God, there's this prediction of a new age coming when the Holy Spirit would come in greater fullness when God would make a new covenant with his people. So Ezekiel 36, I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you, remove you from you, your heart of stone, give your heart of flesh. And this is Ezekiel 3, 36, 27. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. It's the only way you're going to live in the light of God's truth. Ezekiel 36, when the spirit comes on you. Ezekiel 37, you get that all that stuff about the valley of dry bones? Boy, that sounds like Wales today, doesn't it? And God says, Ezekiel 37, 14, I'll put my spirit in you and you will live and I'll settle you in your own land. Then you'll know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I've done it, declares the Lord. Ezekiel 39 speaks about restoring the fortunes of Jacob and then says, they will, then they will know that I am the Lord their God. For though I sent them into exile among the nations, I'll gather them to their own land, not leaving any behind. I'll no longer hide my face from them. For I will pour out my spirit on the people of Israel, declares the Lord. Ezekiel 39. And then Joel 2, which Peter picks up on the day of Pentecost and preaches like it's just happened. Afterwards, I will pour out my spirit on all people. And your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions, even on my servants, men and women. I'll pour out my spirit in those days and there will be deliverance. This was always the plan for the third quarter of the game between redemption and consummation. Do you see the point? How crucial is this? 
you know, maybe, you know, it looks like I'm flogging a dead horse. No, the horse is well and truly alive and essential to the plan. It's crucial, this. This is not some unexpected, unplanned, knee-jerk response to the fall or the human persistence in sin. This is the plan. And something really important flows from that. The way the Spirit brings life and blessing to the people of God, which is the plan, as foreshadowed in what we've been looking at today, it gets lost unless we consciously defend our life in the Spirit. It gets lost unless we consciously defend our life in fellowship with God by his spirit. And what you end up then with is the nominal Christianity that's the biggest threat to Christianity in the world today. Unless we safeguard that life in the spirit. In what specific ways does the spirit bring the blessing without which biblical Christian experience is lost? We'll spend a bit of time going over it. Not now. <laughs> Lunch is precious. But in the coming weeks. What is essential to biblical Christianity is the work of the Spirit between redemption and consummation. What are the impacts then on the life of the genuine biblical Christian of the work of the Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit does a range of things. First of all, of course, he saves. Unless you're born again by the Spirit of God, there's no Christian life. You're dead in your sins. And this is Nicodemus, isn't it? Jesus makes that very clear. But then what does he do? He empowers his people. Wait in Jerusalem till the Spirit comes on you. Acts 1, you know, 8. That's what that's all about, isn't it? You wait till the Spirit comes. He empowers. He purifies. That's what Romans 8 is all about. No more the law, but the inside out purifying work of the Holy Spirit of God. He purifies. He reveals. He speaks today. He speaks through his word, of course, in the New Testament period. He speaks through his people today as God impresses upon us things that he wants said and done. It's crucial stuff. And he unites the genuine people of God. He unites the genuine people of God around his truth. But there's one more thing that impacts us and explains our situation, I'd say, particularly in Wales today. And we must grasp this. The presence of God the Spirit reflects the pleasure or the displeasure of God on a people. What I mean is this. A grieved spirit, and Isaiah 63 was telling us about that. A grieved spirit is evidence of a grievous people. Grievous to God. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit in whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Is that important? If God has gone, said Isaiah, the only thing that sent him is sin. Rejecting him. Pushing him away. Falling short of the standard he made for you and rebelling and rejecting him. And sin puts up that old wall between people and God. Which means he isn't going to be there to help you. But in this diagram, in the slides, can you see there's a stairway going up over the top and across the cross and down, down the other way. The bad news is we all put our walls up against God because that is human nature. That's our nature even in Christ. To build walls, to stop God... 
getting at certain parts of our life. The good news is that Jesus builds stairs over that wall for us through the cross. When we, one, turn from rebelling against him once and for all, and two, put our trust in him once and forever. And then every day. Then every day. And once you're linked up with God again, he's there to help you through all the challenges of life. And we have challenges in life, don't we? We have more challenges in life as professing Christians than we would if we were not professing Christians. Some days, I think. All the more reason, then, to guard our life in the Spirit, because that's what he's there for. The one who comes alongside to help. You know, funnily enough, it was John Calvin who said that the essence of Christianity was the life of God in the soul of man. That's not the image we've got of him, and it's an unfair image we've got in many ways. He's the guy who's saying you've got to safeguard this work of the Spirit of God in your soul, or you're not living like a Christian. Because that's the Christian experience of the God who comes alongside to help. And if he's grieved, he will withdraw the comforter, his presence, as we experience his presence now in this third quarter of the game between redemption and consummation. So what I want to do over the next number of weeks is look at this, this issue. What, what is our experience of God supposed to be? And how do we make sure that our experience of God is maintained as it's supposed to be? What is the biblical Christian experience of God? It's easy to talk about the truth of God. And what we'll do is we'll be coming at our experience of God through the truth. Because that's the only way to be safe about this. If we come at, I come at it through my experience, dictates my experience, then we're it's not only circular, it's potty and we're going to go off with the fairies. What is a biblical Christian experience of God? And it's my prayer that as we do that over the next few weeks, he will do for us those things that the Spirit does for God's people. And you'll keep us from that fifth one of grieving him that we don't want. And the reason I believe that to be a very important thing to do is that we are living in a world where this issue of maintaining this biblical experience of God by our life in the Spirit is being dangerously ignored and dangerously misunderstood. And we need to be a people who are different to what people see because what people see is a lie about God. What people see at the moment of what they think is the God squad is really not terribly credible. And because they only see that, they're having hard experience and saying, where is God? Where is your God? Well, I want him. 